When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 525th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg. And my guest today is one of the most talented and admired actresses of her generation. Over the course of some 35 years in the business, she has given standout performances in films like The Grifters, Bugsy, The American President, American Beauty, Being Julia, The Kids Are Alright, 20th Century Women, and Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Accumulating along the way four Oscar nominations, an Emmy nomination, and two Tony nominations, and winning two Golden Globe Awards, a BAFTA Award, and a SAG Award. Vanity Fair has called her a leading lady from the old school, who epitomizes the wit and glamour of modern Hollywood, while the Los Angeles Times has said she brings to mind such Golden Age actresses as Betty Davis, Claudette Colbert, and Barbara Stanwyck, sassy, ready-for-anything heroines a half-step ahead of their man. And in my humble opinion, she has never been better than she is in her latest film, which is now streaming on Netflix, Jimmy Chin and Chai Vassarelli's Nyad, in which she plays Diana Nyad, a woman who spent years of her life trying to become the first person to swim the 110 miles between Cuba and Florida without the aid of a shark cage, and for which this actress was already nominated for a Best Drama Actress Golden Globe Award and is nominated for a Best Actress SAG Award. Annette Benning. Over the course of a conversation at the L.A. offices of PMC, the 65-year-old and I discussed her transition from stage actress to screen actress with The Grifters, for which she received her first Oscar nomination, followed a year later by Bugsy, on which she met and co-starred opposite her soon-to-be husband and frequent collaborator, Warren Beatty, two films in which she did some of her best work and for which she probably came closest to winning an Oscar, American Beauty and Being Julia, Coincidentally, she came up short both times to the same person, Hilary Swank. The underestimated and somewhat discarded middle-aged women she's played in 20th Century Women, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, and Nyad, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for coming in, Ms. Bang. Great to have you. And, uh... On this podcast, we truly go back to the beginning. Can you share with our listeners, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, wow. Okay, sure. Um, I was born in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, my mom was a homemaker, and I'm the youngest of four kids. And my dad uh, was in the insurance business. He started as a salesman and then became a manager, recruiting and teaching salesmen um, 
He was also a teacher of the Dale Carnegie Sales Course. So, um, yeah. So I was born in Topeka in 1958. I was going to say, reading about your your parents, it seems like there was a, an element of a performer in in each of them, right? The, uh, with the Dale Carnegie stuff, which I guess you, I, I gather you had for a while observed him doing. I mean, it in its own way, it's uh, it's kind of acting, right? You know, I had never thought of my dad that way, but when. He, I, I was the secretary of the sales course when I was in high school. So he taught the, the sales course. There's also a human relations, human relations course, which um, is the how to win friends and influence people side of things, which is an incredible book. I just read it recently, reread it or whatever. My dad just died three months ago. So oh, I was kind I'm of looking, looking through all that stuff. But the five great rules of selling are attention, interest, conviction, desire, close. That is just drummed into me. And when I saw my dad teach, I have to say, I did feel like I saw this entire side of him that I had never known existed. He was charismatic. He was funny. He was charming. And he was deeply passionate about about what he was teaching. So, yeah, that was an eye-opener. My mother was a voice major in college has always had an extraordinarily beautiful singing voice. So there's always music around, that's for sure. Nice. Well, for you, in terms of real exposure to out-and-out acting, you know, what we would all recognize as, as acting, I guess there was a um, like a field trip or something that, with your class, exposed you to, was it Shakespeare? Yeah, the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, which is downtown in Balboa Park. They... Um, they have a beautiful Shakespeare theater there that's been around for a long time. And we were taken to see a couple of productions inside. Merchant of Venice, I remember. I remember Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is an early Shakespeare play, not considered to be one of his greatest plays. But they did it in such a way, they set it in the 18th century, and all the props were people. So if there was a painting in the room, it would be a person standing there holding a frame and then they were the they were the the, the painting and then they would be watching and listening. Uh, if it was a door, there would be two people, you know, pretending that they were the door. I remember just being so entertained by that. Uh yeah, I kind of fell in love with it. And then it sounds like, you know, just a recurring theme of of this podcast and I'm sure of just just uh um performers in general is that they're sometimes teachers who really can make or break somebody's interest in in something. And it sounds like for you, you dabbled, I guess, in a bit of acting junior high school, but it was in high school you had a, a serious acting teacher for the first time? I did. I had a teacher named Ann Archer, and she was an actress herself, and she was a single mom. I remember she drove a Fiat. She had her hair point, uh, parted in the middle, long, straight hair. She was very intense and very serious about the theater and was uh, teaching us stuff that Jerzy Kurtowski exercises, who was this famous theater man from Europe who um, was into experimental uh, theater and uh, of that time. Um, so this is the 70s. So this, in the 60s, there had been a, a, like a large movement towards experimental theater, especially in Europe. So she was kind of aware of all this stuff. And at the time, I didn't really know what she was doing. But then later, as I studied more and as I went, when I went to college, I did end up appreciating more kind of just how extraordinary she was. And just her level of commitment was um, 
kind of irrational. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess maybe we all need that, a certain amount of irrational um, commitment. So uh, she did make a, a big impression on me. And graduate early, go off to uh, community college for a little bit where, again, the acting was central to what you were doing there. At what point along the line? I mean, I would imagine it's somewhere around there before you go off to uh, ACT that you decide this is really what you're going to do with your life. Uh, Do you remember that moment? Well, I, you know, it was all so very modest. It couldn't have been more modest in its appearance at this little community college uh, that had a little theater program in it. I loved the people. um, I loved the camaraderie and the friendships. And they were teaching a four-semester program where you got to do all the different jobs in the theater. I ran the electric board, I remember, on one show. Um, They would do plays, they would do musicals, and you could audition. And then you also had to, you know, at one point, either do the props or the sets or costumes or something. So that sense of everybody being involved was very much how they worked. And um, I sort of fell in love with that. So I just... And I just kind of followed my way. Um, I wanted to go to a city. I didn't want to go to Los Angeles. So that's how I kind of ended up at San Francisco State. Um, And they had a big theater department there, and it ended up kind of being good for me. So I just sort of stumbled my way along. It was, um, I mean, I had no sense of kind of where I was going. I had no sense of whether I would actually be able to work. I'd never really met an actor. I didn't really know anything about show business or the larger world of um, of that. So um, I just followed my love of the theater and doing plays, really. And in terms of eventually, if you're, you know, going to go professional with this, at, at some point, usually you either end up in New York or L.A. For you, it sounds like there was a, a multi-year process of actually getting to New York by your own choice, right? Like you had, in terms of, could you connect the dots between what I guess we would call a showcase and signing with an agent that would bring you to New York? Uh, Yeah, I, the American Conservatory Theater, which is where I went to graduate school, um, had a repertory company. And basically the conservatory funded the, 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 the repertory company. And that is the great joy of any theater actors to be in a rep company. Because in a rep company, you're sharing responsibilities. You're doing different kinds of plays. You might be doing a classical play and a modern play. You might be playing a supporting role in one and a leading in another. And you're with the same group of people and you all get to know each other very well. We were doing Shakespeare and Shaw and uh, modern plays as well. So um, that was my dream. And I still feel so, so grateful. There were a number of actors in the company who made such a huge impression on me. And I was very, very lucky that I got to be in the company, that I got good parts. So after I finished graduate school and I was then put into the company, um, I did I was part of the showcase. We went to New York. We met, we all met a bunch of agents and I did meet an agent named David Gus who, um, I met him sort of towards the end of the day. I remember because I was so nervous and I was going around and meeting people and didn't really know how to handle the situation. By that time, I was just so exhausted that I didn't have the energy to sort of pretend I was something that I, that I thought I should be or whatever that means. And, um, and David was great. And he just, I said, look, I'm, I'm, 
I really want to be a classical actress, and I'm now I've just got my equity card. I'm in this company, but I'd like to come to New York in a few years, maybe. And he said, well, keep in touch. So uh, I did. I did a few more years at ACT. I did another season uh, at the Denver Center Theater Company. And um, I would call him and stay in touch. And he kept his word. And so when I moved to New York, um, he did sign me. And it seems like, I mean, sometimes on paper it looks faster than it actually was, but it seems like once you're in New York, this um, production that you did both off-Broadway and on-Broadway, you know, you you seems like you hit the ground running, right? I mean, this is Coastal Disturbances, first and second stage, then on-Broadway, Tony nomination. Like, it's it, was there... I guess that seems like it must have been the the really like break in a way, right? To kick it up to your your level of visibility in the business. Uh, yeah, I was very lucky that I got the play. I had thought about going to LA, but had you know, had kind of had made one trip to Los Angeles at one point very early on, and my teeth were chipped, and I kind of hadn't had any. You know, my teeth were you know kind of uneven. And I remember somebody saying, well, you know, you need to get your teeth fixed. And I remember thinking, oh, what? You know, what? what, what is that about? Really not understanding at all. So um, I thought if I went to New York, perhaps I could be seen in a play and that maybe that would help me into the next uh, level. So the fact that I got that play, that I was so fortunate, and we did run uh, off-Broadway for quite a while, and then we did move to Broadway. So yeah, that was great, because then people could just come and see me if they were interested. And suddenly, even though I hadn't been there that long, I was a New York actress, whatever that meant. And really, I was from the regional theater. I was from the West Coast, which I'm very proud of. And I'm I'm very proud of the fact that I started in the nonprofit theater. I'm very grateful to that part of our theater community, even though it's kind of under threat right now. But yeah, so then I did get to do... and, And also, quite frankly, just the demands of doing a play for a year, uh, what that means on your soul, you know, the uh, the eight shows a week and the demands of that. I, I remember, I mean, I remember how much I would just wake up in the morning and the first thing I opened my eyes, I would think, oh, I got to hit those moments later on or twice if you, because two days a week, of course, you're doing two shows. So um, it's a great rigorous discipline and I recommend it just because it does kind of teach you who you are. And um, it's wonderful, and I, I'm very grateful for that. A number of the friends that I made uh, from that production I'm still close with. We, we really became like family. I know one of the people who came and saw you in that show was Mike Nichols, right? And from yes, that, yes, he did. I yeah. think, uh, you know, there's among these early screen roles were a, a couple with him. But first, I should say, it looks like maybe the first was a pilot where— as I understand it, they shoot the pilot, it goes to series, but your part was recast. Which I was is a, fired. That's pretty demoralizing <laughs> at the at the outset. I mean, was that um, just, you know, does that, did that at the time seem like the, like the end of the world? It was devastating. I, um, I was trying to get my courage up to believe that I was funny, to believe that I was sexy. It certainly confirmed my insecurities. Um, I, I, uh, I learned so much from that experience, but I remember when we were going to get the call about the series uh, or, you know, whether it was going to go or not, quote unquote, go, get picked up. 
I ne- it never occurred to me that um, that they would pick it up and not take me, which is exactly what my agents how how he said it. You know, and and at the time too, they were very, they felt so bad the people that had done it because you know they liked me, whatever. I'm a nice person, but they uh, they felt so guilty that they couldn't really face me. And I learned I learned a lot from that because years later, one of the guys that was um, responsible for the decision, you know, he wrote me a really nice note. I'd run into him somewhere, and then I, and he said, you know, I didn't handle that well, and sorry about that. You know, so it was a great lesson right there because you know we all sometimes have those moments, right? We don't handle things in the best way possible. Um, and they just felt so guilty about doing what they did, but they also needed to do it. They So anyway, I learned a lot from that. Um, I learned that I wasn't sexy or funny, and <laughs> and um, I was really humiliated. But then I, j- I was still doing the play. So I did have that. You know, I was in the middle of the play. I continued on. And so I had a job. And that was, of course, a great thing. So I just continued on with it and uh, carried on. But it was it was a big blow. Well, I just wonder, though, I mean, I don't think any of the whether it's San Francisco State or ACT. I mean, where were you supposed to have learned how to act for a camera? It's a whole isn't it a seems like a totally different skill set or is that I mean, you had to kind of learn as you went, right? I did. I think all of us do the internal work. I think is not that different. And the preparation and the thinking about it and the daydreaming and the sort of whatever it is that you need as an actor to kind of fill yourself up with in order to feel a sense of need, Um, a sense of imbalance, really, because what you're trying to create, one way of talking about it is almost to say like there's a hole inside of you that you're trying to fill, that the character is trying to fill. There's a dramatic problem that the character is trying to solve in some way. Um, so, yeah, I, I I didn't know anything about marks or sitting into a shot or any of the things, which, by the way, it doesn't take that long to learn, but I was, but I was very intimidated. And I that maybe had something to do with my performance. I don't know. But um, no, I think if you go to acting school and you do plays, it's the best way to prepare because you really live inside of great literature. You live inside of minds that are so sophisticated and interesting and from different periods and different places. And um, it's just a great way to expand your own intellectual language um, your spiritual, you know, just everything, emotional, on every on every level. Um, although, you know, many good actors, of course, don't start in the theater, and that's fine. So it's not, I, I don't think it's a requirement by any means, but it was helpful to me. Sure. So the, what ended up being the first screen role, I guess, is The Great Outdoors. This is John Hughes, your Dan Aykroyd's wife, a small part there, which then is followed by a much bigger project for Milos Forman, Valmont. Uh, this is a year later, and I just want to ask you about that because here he is. He's pretty recently coming off of Amadeus winning a zillion Oscars and being a big thing, and obviously before that, Cuckoo's Nest and all that, but I've heard that he had a very, <laughs> I don't know, demanding, blunt way of, of working and, and uh, a lot of takes, a lot of just right to the point. What was your experience on that one playing this sort of... Uh, aristocrat. I think you've said it was your first trip to 
to Europe and yes. all that. It must have been quite a heady thing. Oh, my gosh. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I had my fittings in Rome. <laughs> I mean, I was flown to Rome to have a fitting. Are you kidding? It was beyond a dream. It was just beyond. Uh, first of all, I was up for the part for a long time. I don't know how many months, but many, many months. And I would go in and read, and then I would read with him alone, and then I would read with a number of different actors. And then I then he actually did screen tests on that as well which I think is probably the only time I really did an actual screen test. Mine was with Kevin Spacey. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, And he was, he did become, uh, he was very, very tough in a way that most Western directors wouldn't be. And uh, I was so new at it that I sort of assumed he was sort of right. And I think he probably was. It's a period film, and there is this sort of general period tension that some of us get into, which is sort of posing, or it, it's just, he just kept saying, natural, natural, natural. And um, and he would make fun of us, you know, kind of. He didn't mean it that way, but he would. He would tease us about the way we would say things. But in a way... It's a very tough thing when a director wants a certain thing from you. How do they get it? And some people talk too much and they just go on and on and on where he would just sort of demonstrate it. Although he would also overact. Okay, to be honest, Miller, <laughs> sorry. And when he would demonstrate it. But the essence of his suggestions and ideas was actually, of course, right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And so I learned a lot from him, um, and I'm very grateful for that. And I would, I ended up saying to him when he would, you know, he would want something, and he was frustrated that he wasn't getting it. And I would say, "Well, show me. Go ahead and show me." Uh, but we did, as actors, we did commiserate a certain amount and talk <laughs> about, "Oh my God, did you hear what he said to so and so?" Some people he was harder on than others, but I also developed an incredible affection for him. And um, wonderful man and warm and and also sort of no bullshit in a sort of refreshing way, right? There's so much kind of handling of people and massaging of actors' egos and all of that, which, I mean, most of us really don't want or need, uh, but other people kind of treat us that way sometimes. And so in a way, it was it was kind of impressive and rigorous. In fact, I saw a scene from them. I was at something the other day and they were showing clips yeah, and they yeah. showed a clip from it. And I thought, oh, I remember that. And I remember how many times we did the scene because it was very complex. It was moving through a room and it was a steady cam. I think it was, I guess it was a steady cam, although I don't know. Did we have steady cams then? Sure, sure. But I remember that we didn't have any video playback. Video playback was just starting at that point. And I think for the high class guys at the beginning, they were like, oh, no, no, we don't. We look down on people who do video playback. (laughs) Now, of course, the entire movie is centered around the video village and the the monitors and everyone's watching. But at that point, when um, they would say cut, everybody would just turn to the operator. He was the only person who'd actually seen it. And Milos also, Milos would also be next to the camera watching 
And you know what? I kind of love that. I still sort of miss it. It's not a common thing. Yeah. I think that the way people talk about Mike Nichols, it seems like it's a very different way of working with actors. I don't know. I mean, this for you at, the, at first with Postcards from the Edge, it's a, kind of this smaller scene with, with Meryl Streep. But then in uh, that's 1990. And then the next year is regarding Henry with uh, a larger part with you and Harrison Ford. And I just wonder, you know, Nichols really is spoken about kind of reverentially by so many actors. That doesn't mean everybody's experience was the same. I just wonder what, what you found uh, working with him like. Uh, uh, well, he was great. Um, he was a great audience. He would laugh like hell. You know, he was so entertained by what we did. And if you did something, and he, he was really watching and he was really noticing. Um, I uh, And so we all did love him for that. On Postcards from the Edge... I was doing a play in New York, and they were developing the screenplay. So it was Carrie Fisher who was adapting her book. Meryl Streep was playing her. Shirley MacLaine was playing her mother. And so we did a couple of different readings of the screenplay with uh, a group of us who were all theater actors playing all the other parts. So you would play two or three different parts as you read through it. Oliver Platt was also doing that as well. And so then when we eventually made the movie, we each got one scene and I got to do a scene with Meryl. But that was an interesting experience as well, just just realizing how important it is to read the screenplay and how much can be learned. A lot of people don't do that. Uh, they don't sit and read it aloud. And you really can learn a tremendous amount. You know, if you have suspicions that maybe there's this section that doesn't quite work and it's not quite, it's a little too long or it's just kind of boring or falls flat or doesn't really connect, you'll really see that in a, in a reading. And I was impressed with that with Mike. Um, although we didn't get, we weren't privy to all the notes afterwards, you know, we weren't privy to the, the entire process. But then when they eventually did the film, I think I must have been towards the beginning of the schedule because at the very beginning, Mike basically staged this reading of the screenplay. And it was, he took over an entire soundstage. There was this big rectangle of seats. All the actors were there. Um, Shirley and Meryl, who both sang in the, in the movie, both had to do numbers. I mean, they had live piano there. They were both singing. I mean, it was like a thing. He was a showman. Yeah. And that there was something about that. And I think that the great theater directors, one of the things they, they tend to bring to movies is a sense of camaraderie, a sense of everybody's being important and understanding that everyone is, is plays a very important role and, you know, makes people feel important and part of something. Yeah. Because they actually believe that. Yeah. So the one that in screen acting, obviously, I think really put you on the map at the beginning was was the Grifters and Stephen Frears, who you've said you had met with, I believe, even on his first prior project, Dangerous Liaisons, uh, part that ended up being played by Michelle Pfeiffer. But so he's... He, no, I wasn't up for that not part. Not that part? No, I was up for the part of the girl that gets the letter written on her ass. <laughs> I was up well, for this very small part of, you know, just the, there's a moment where, you know, you see him write, it's John Malkovich, yeah, and he's yeah. writing a letter and you see this girl's bum. Okay. And and that was the part that I was up for. I but I didn't corrected. get the part. <laughs> well, the one that you play in The Grifters, just to remind folks, uh, Myra is... Con artist girlfriend of a con artist whose mother's also a con artist, and it's uh, everybody's conning everybody. And um, I, I guess 
getting that part um and 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 playing that one let's just say say you've said the speaking of how things can shape performance you've credited the costume design of that one as a, a big part of figuring out how you were going to play her and um but just playing that one and also the aftermath that we can talk about because just to cite a few things Pauline Kael writes a review, calls you a stunning actress. That's not a bad way wow, to get introduced to people. National to Society of Film Critics, year's best supporting actress, Oscar nomination. So it seems like there would be a before and after the Grifters, right? Um, you know, I've, it's funny. I remember Stephen, uh, some of his suggestions. He told me to watch Gloria Graham. He told me to lighten my voice. He told me. And and I just, I remember the visual cues I got. I remember the images that I started working with and sort of how I got launched into that. I guess it was just that plus the writing. It's a, it's based on a Jim Thompson book, Jim Thompson, who was just a terrific writer and quite a character in his own right. I went into some drugstore, I think it was, and I just bought a stack of his dime store novels, which is what they were, and tucked inside of it was one that was actually an autobiography. And he talks about working on the oil rigs in Texas. He was a kid. He dropped out of school. But he was intellectual. And he was a terrible drunk. Um, really interesting person um, who ended up coming to Los Angeles. And there were no, there have been a number. I'm sure you know them all. There's a number of film adaptations of his books. So there was this kind of wealth of, of sort of material to draw from. Um, and I fell in love with it, fell in love with it. And then Richard Horning, uh, you just mentioned, who was the costume designer, he did have a, that made a big impression on me. Uh, I remember the the hair and makeup people who I still know, um, Sydney Cornell, who did my hair. And she, in one day, took me, chopped off my hair, permed it, colored it. All of that stuff really contributed to this kind of transformation. I was ready for it. Yeah. And then it would not, I think, have been that long after that, that you had another pretty important meeting, which I guess was at one point going to have happened a few years or supposed to have happened a few years earlier with Dick Tracy. Um, that would have been in 88. Instead, I'm guessing it's 90, 1990 for a movie that comes out in 1991. Uh, how did you first learn of interest in you for a movie called Bugsy? Oh, you know, I just, I think it was you know, another one of those, you know, there's so-and-so is interested in you. They're doing this film. It's Barry Levinson and Warren Beatty. Warren's producing it and starring in it. And I, they did not show me a script. I'm, I'm sure they didn't show me a script. But I remember I met Barry first and Barry's still it dear friend of ours, um, wonderful man, incredibly good director and hilarious person, started out in comedy writing, a wonderful person. Um, and we got on very well. We just met at a bar or something, had a drink. And then it was after that that I met Warren. And then they did cast me at Virginia as Virginia, wonderful role, just a smashing, you know, I love that movie. Yeah. It's a good movie. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's a good one. We should just remind folks, this is Virginia Hill, who was sort of a starlet, but also involved with with Bugsy Siegel, very tumultuous relationship. Meanwhile, uh, and I guess mid-40s is where most of this is um, taking place, but what did you, I mean, at that time, I, I obviously uh, about, I think, 250 episodes or so ago, I was 
lucky enough to have your husband on this podcast. And uh, obviously, what an unbelievable resume he had, even up, of course, just even up to pre-Bugsy. When you're uh, going in to, to meet about working with, with him and meeting with him before your cast or whatever, just... Um, what did you, what, is that a nerve wracking thing at the time? Was it exciting? How quickly uh, did, did you guys kind of click professionally and personally on that? Well, um, I, uh, yeah, one is always a little nervous going and meeting people. Although I had met a number of famous actors at that point and been asked, go to the such and such hotel and, you know, meet so-and-so. So I I'd had a few of those. So yeah, it's a little nervous making. Uh, but uh, I was, he was very engaging and incredibly intelligent, charming and funny. But I do remember thinking, wow, this guy's so smart. And I remember him talking about how much he wanted a partner that he could really, you know, go back and forth with. And he knew that he was only as good as the person in the scene with him and uh, that he wanted to be able to really be challenged. Um, and, you know, I, I was impressed and thought, oh, okay, well, that sounds reasonable to me, but I didn't know if I had the job. So I just really thought of it as a, as a you know, a work meeting. And he says within five, ten minutes, he, he knew you, he wanted you to play the part. Was it sort of, um, you know, when you think back to that one, which is now 33 years ago, yeah. um, what stands out most in your memory just about the, the, the period of making that movie? Uh, falling in love. And, uh, you know, making this, making a very, you know, demanding movie and falling in love and uh, a new chapter of life began for sure. No, that's great. And, yeah. and how many, how many people can go back and actually watch the, <laughs> that moment in their life uh, preserved forever on, on film. It's a pretty cool, uh, thing, but now it's interesting because after Bugsy, which got a zillion Oscar nominations and recognition and all of that, um, you there were three years before we saw you on screen again in a film, and that was because you guys. I think you had your first child around that time, and you've said actually it was kind of interesting that when you with each of your kids that there was you know rather than some people might be like you know what opportunities are going to be there when I come back, you kind of have said you you were not in a particular rush to to get back to work after each kid. I was lucky because I did step away to have children, um, and I had always wanted kids. So I was one of those people from when I was very little, like a little kid, myself. I was playing with little kids, and I didn't, it was just me. I think part of it was I wanted my mother to have more kids. I was the youngest, and I wanted a little sister or brother. So I immediately started babysitting and hanging out with the little kids. So I was really ready at that point. I really wanted a baby. Um, I didn't realize it was three years. I guess it was three years. Um, but yeah, I, I would stop and, uh, kind of lose the desire for a while. And then that would kind of worry me after a little bit. And then I thought, oh no, no, it comes, comes back. Yeah. <laughs> and it always came back. And, and I was lucky that way and was able to, um, to work and have, have the babies and continue and take time off in between, which is of course the, the great thing about, I mean, God, I'm so lucky I was able to do that. Um, and I really wanted that. You know, I really wanted to be able to have my life and have my life away from all the hubbub of show business. Right, right. Well, when you came back uh, that that time, it was with another collaboration with 
at this point, now your husband, he wasn't your husband when you did Bugsy, but Love Affair, which uh, you're playing the part previously played by Irene Dunn, Deborah Carr. Uh, this is 1994. Sometimes people say, you know, working with a person who you're actually like the involved with, the, it doesn't always translate onto the screen. But in this, in your guys' experience, that's, that was never a problem. But if, do you under, like, if you were to dissect that, why is that sometimes, you know, that people that you actually do have real world chemistry, it just isn't there sometimes? You know, it's a good question. And I don't think anybody really has a, has a good answer for why chemistry is there for some people and isn't for other right. people. So I don't know where that comes from because I know there, there have certainly been, and I will not reveal <laughs> who, but there have been people that, you know, I didn't feel a necessarily a great chemistry with, but actually it looks fine on screen. So um, you can never really tell. It is, there's a lot of illusion, isn't there? I guess that's the whole job. That, that's part of what we're doing. And part of it is the camera and part of it is the lighting and and just the magic of the of the story. If if one feels carried away into a story as an audience member, you can you can forgive a lot of things. True, and and uh, I'll just note also in that one, it must have been pretty cool to be an, in a film with also Catherine Hepburn. I mean, that was I know for I was reading going back and reading prepping for this. Just what a courtship that was for uh, Warren to just get her to to do it. I mean, I don't think she'd ever played a. A supporting part in a movie, a smaller part, but at, at that point, probably in her 80s, 90s. She but, was in her 80s. Yeah. It was her last movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, that was such an honor. And I was just sort of airbrushed out of the picture. <laughs> I was sort of like somewhere over there in a blur. Right. She was definitely just focused on Warren and he was focused on her. Right. Um, as well, he should have been. <laughs> um, and I just remember when I came onto the set, um, I remember she was sitting down and she kind of looked up at me and said, how tall are you? You know, she was <laughs> a little concerned about me being too tall. Um, but it was great to to get to meet her and to be around her, of course. What a legend. And and she's very good in the movie, too. Yeah. She has a great scene. Right. And she has that thing. Yeah. That sparkle is still there. That magic, that absolute extraordinary quality that she always had was still there even then. We also got to meet a couple, a couple of other actresses, which is, was interesting, uh, because we didn't know if Catherine Hepburn was going to do it. So we got to meet Frances D., wow. who was a great actress, um, and Uta Hagen, yeah. who was a great uh, theater teacher, I mean, excuse me, acting teacher yes. as well. Yes, She wrote a very famous book about acting called Respect for Acting that most of us revere. And uh, so we got to meet her, too. So I had a lot of life lessons in there. That's cool. I am obviously not going to uh, ask you about every movie that you've done, because there's just, we'd be here uh, forever. But I have to, there's a few more that I have to hit on, if that's okay. Let's talk about The American President. This is 19, this is the year after that, 95. Rob Reiner, you're playing this environmental uh, activist who ends up involved with the president, played by Michael Douglas. And I think it was sort of the model for the West Wing because you've got Sorkin writing it and soon after that did the West Wing. But I guess in, on that one, just anything generally that that's, uh, stands out, but specifically, I guess I, it's always interesting to hear about Sorkin's dialogue is pretty 
uh, specific, and I don't think there's any improvising off of it. So what was your experience with that? Well, it kind of was the beginning of his right. of, of his arc of into the writing up until the present moment. I mean, I guess he's kind of famous for the great Sorkin rants. Right. And I think I have a couple of <laughs> yes. them in that. I haven't seen it in a while. Maybe but, some uh, walk and talks, too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a great pleasure uh, to do that. Rob Reiner directing, Michael Douglas playing the president. We had a great cast. Um, and, uh, I mean, what an idea that I, that, that I would be playing, you know, a, a member of that, of that community, a, a, a political activist, a, a lobbyist for the environmental community. <laughs> and that was like the romance of it. <laughs> um, no, it was great. It was a great job. It's funny. One of the things I really remember from that is it, we were shooting during the time of the OJ trial. And for anybody who was around at that point, it was one of the first really big televised trials. And uh, it was on TV every day. And we were shooting uh, here in Los Angeles on the lot. And uh, in between setups, Rob would go in and watch the trial. And then and then he would come over and kind of update us on what was going on uh, in the OJ trial. So it was a it was a wonderful experience. I'm very grateful to Michael and to Rob. And it's a movie a lot of people talk to me about. It's a movie that my parents could watch. A lot of my movies my parents wouldn't watch. Uh, my parents are good Republicans. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Episcopalians. And so, yeah, some of those they, they weren't into. But that was one they could accept me. Okay, so we have to talk about American Beauty, which 25 years old now. You're playing Carolyn Burnham, wife, mother, real estate agent in suburbia, sort of a, uh, I think hopefully it's fair to say, a bit of a tightly wound person in a family that's got it's some issues. It was a first um, film directed by Sam Mendes, uh, just 34 years old, which I had not remembered that he was that young. I guess for for you, how does somebody in that at that moment, a first time filmmaker? Yes, it's DreamWorks and Spielberg and all of that, but like, I'm sure there are a lot of first time filmmakers that would love to have you star in their film. What what sold you on that this would be? I don't know if you knew it, it would be as great as it would be, but it was uh, he sold you on being part of it. Alan Ball wrote that script. Um, I think he won the Academy Award for it. It won Best Picture. Um, it was a very good script, and it was recognized as such at the time. Um, I remember there was another film that I was up that I was offered at the time, and I remember that one being a more traditional, um, larger budget movie with a studio. And I and I met with Sam, and I think it's a really tough thing. Uh, to be a director and to meet with people. I mean, as an actress, I've done it so many times. And when I was trying to get jobs and I know what it's like, it's, yeah. And, and I think for directors, it's a very difficult thing to talk about because it's a visual medium. And to talk about kind of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it is almost impossible. So I don't really expect that of people. And I don't really like putting people in that position, but I did want to meet him. And um, Sam has a really interesting quality because he's He's got incredible confidence, but he's never arrogant. And he just has this way about him. He was a boy wonder in the London theater. He was very experienced in putting plays together, sitting down with a group of actors and making them all feel part of us, part of the same thing. 
which he very much did on this. So it was a kind of a combination of things. I was supposed to do a play at the time as well. And I remember both Kevin and I, Kevin Spacey, who also was in it, um, we were both doing plays. And I was doing a play here in Los Angeles, had a gabbler. He was doing a play in New York. So they had to adjust the schedule. I think we had to go sooner because of it. Um, so it was one of those things. Uh, uh, thankfully, we all decided, you know, to jump in together. And it was a great, great experience. I remember we shot one scene that at the very beginning that um, we reshot. And I remember, to his credit, Sam went to the producers and said, hey, I didn't get this right. Of course, I thought it was because I didn't get it right that we had to reshoot it because I thought surely it was my fault. Um, but he felt it was just the wrong location and the way it was staged. And um, so to his credit, he had the confidence, you know, to go in and say, look, I, I need two more days because this isn't quite right. And, you know, to his credit, he understood that. The original screenplay was also bookended by a trial. So the original story um, did have a trial in it. It began and ended with a trial. And when they began to put it together, and then when as they got further into the editing process, Sam thought, wait a minute, I need to take off the beginning and the ending and just let it live in its own. And everybody said, wow, yeah, that works. And, so no, that was his amazing, idea. Amazing. And, and I know you guys, I don't know how common it is to have two weeks of rehearsal, but that may have been uh, something that was uh, helpful in bringing you all together. But one of the things, and I don't know if this was affected by the elimination of those bookends of with the trial, but, you know, people may remember it's being essentially narrated by a guy who says, I'm going to be dead in a year. And and so it's, it's sort of through his eyes. And I just wondered, as you're figuring out how to play your character, does that mean that you are having to play what you think he th sees you as? Or do you know what I mean? Or are you just, is it written in a way this is, like, what's the truth? Is the truth what he's imagining through his eyes of being this unhappy suburban guy who's kind of melting down? Or do you get what I mean? Yeah, I think that the writing is so strong because each person can fight for their own point of view. Yeah. And I felt as, as you know, the, the, the movie is a very dark comedy. So it definitely teeters on being very, very sad and very, very funny at the same time. And I know, I remember in, I remember attending a few different screenings and in one screening, there would be a huge laugh at a certain point. And then at the next screening, it would be silent at the same moment. I remember that very well. Um, you know, they, in good writing, you just try to play the truth of it. And then whether it's funny or sad or whatever it is, is really not your job. And um, I felt that very much in playing her. I felt great sympathy for her. Um, and uh, I know that she really presses people's buttons, <laughs> that character, and a lot of women kind of connect to her because she's so tough on herself. Well, that actually perfectly leads into the next question I want to ask you, because there's a scene in, that you play as her that apparently was also the scene that made Lisa Chilodenko say, I really want Annette Benning if I can get her for Kids Are All Right. And that's the one where she's put all this effort into selling this one particular house and then it goes wrong at the pool and she goes back inside and sort of just has a, a meltdown and is hitting herself and crying. And um, 
just because that scene was so impressive to all of us and certainly then to Lisa. Just do you remember anything specific about that one? Was that a one that you had, you know, kind of uh, seen as a particular challenge for for playing? Yeah, I think it's one of those. There are some scenes you read and you immediately see as being a great scene. And in some ways you don't think about them again. You put them away um, deep down into your consciousness somewhere. I mean, we did do we did rehearse quite a bit. That was good. Um, that we got to know each other. We got to talk through and kind of improvise. I did a fair amount of improvisation as we were shooting as well. I can think of a few different scenes where, where uh, we did have enough time and Sam would come in and say, okay, just say whatever you want or do it differently this time. Say what you feel like saying. Do you like that? Is that? Oh, great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I felt very comfortable improvising as as Carolyn Burnham. So, um, so yeah, that scene uh, we did, I remember we were shooting out in the suburbs in the valley, and I remember being quite nervous and thinking, okay, I got to be ready when they're ready, which is, of course, the job of film acting um, is being ready when they're ready. Um, and we did shoot it, and I was so relieved okay, wow, dude, okay, we've got that over with, it's done. And then I saw it on the call sheet sometime later, um, the same scene. It was like a nightmare. I was like, what, that's that scene again? What, how could that be? Um, and I immediately called Sam and said, oh, I see that that scene is there. He said, oh, yeah, it was too dark. Oh, we no. couldn't see you. Conrad Hall uh, shot the movie. He was a great cinematographer and... Um, a wonderful man of, of talk about a poetic kind of philosophical presence and just felt his way into scenes in the way an actor would. Um, and of course he was known for creating great atmosphere and often creating a lot of darkness in a scene in all the various movies that he did. So he was a genius and I loved him. Um, miss him very much. So we did have to shoot it again. And, you know, so you, that's the deal. Uh, that's the, that's the job. And that's when you, you know, as an actor, you think, oh yeah, there is no gun to my head here. I'm in, I'm volunteering right. for this. This is my job. Uh, but it is kind of scary because sometimes you wonder, you know, can you come up with it in the moment? But that was, that was, that was a great scene. And Alan Ball, I think he was inspired uh, by a couple of different uh, experiences of when he was writing for television and that um, that that's how he got that scene. Right. <laughs> uh, just another one that I think is showcases, you know, the just your your abilities so impressively is being Julia, where it's basically I can't even figure out how many different it's a performer who's performing in her on stage in her real life, what's real, what's not. I mean, just to remind people, it's a 1930s stage actress who is not in a good place in her marriage and is having an affair with a younger man, and it goes from there. But uh, just this is five years after American Beauty, being Julia, anything that, you know, just in terms of juggling that kind of a thing where I can't imagine there's too many things more challenging than playing somebody who's playing somebody, essentially. Yeah, it was definitely what Somerset Mom was was writing about and what he was interested in. He wrote a novel uh, that that was based on. The novel is called Theater. And he was quite uh, jaded at that point himself. He'd been a hugely successful playwright, but he was kind of mad at everybody in the theater and he had a certain amount of bitterness. But he was very much interested in the metaphor of, of actors and 
and people. Like, are we playing ourselves? Are we performing our lives? And are actors the perfect metaphor for all of us? Um, so there was a lot of, of that kind of mirror within a mirror in the writing. I love the, the experience. Ishvan Zabo, this great Hungarian director, did it. We shot it in Budapest. Um, it was just an incredible challenge. Jeremy Irons, uh, Miriam Margulies, uh, you know, just it was it was a great um, a great challenge, and that is what we all look for: is just the the thing you haven't done, the 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 kind of work you've never been able to do. Uh, I certainly had never been able to play that kind of a part on film, so I was just I loved it. Hmm. The year after that was. Mrs. Harris TV movie Emmy nomination year after that is running with scissors, which I think was Ryan Murphy's feature writing and directing debut, uh, adapted from best-selling memoir of Augustine Burroughs. You're playing a mentally disturbed and I don't know what's exact diagnosis it would be, but mother who's pretty difficult to, to her family, I guess, again, first-time director who now we kind of know has become prolific and, and and established himself. But what, in this case, made you say, all right, here's a first-time director I'm going to bet on? The book was really quite a smash at the time, Running With Scissors, and had made a huge impression. And the story is harrowing. If, for those of you who haven't ever read it, uh, what happened to this young guy. And yeah, I mean, it was a kind of d delicious project. Um, Ryan was just starting out, which is now like, <laughs> so, cause he's now he's just like the king of, right, of everywhere, this, of everywhere <laughs> and doing everything. But um, it was, it was a great, he was, he was incredibly um, enmeshed in the whole style of it. He was really interested in the way that it looked. He was interested in making it extraordinary um, to witness um, so he was, he was a very, um, intoxicating kind of guy to be around and he still is, yeah. you know, he's got so many ideas, he's got so many passions. And, um, so it was, and Brian Cox was in yeah. it. Yeah, that was great. It was, it was a wonderful cast and a, and a, and a weird, bizarre, interesting project. I'll just mention, we're not necessarily going to stop here unless there's something you really want to mention about it. But I, I was always... Uh, it's a smaller movie, but I thought you're particularly great in uh, Mother and Child. This is Rodrigo Garcia, who you're playing a woman who decades earlier had, had to give up her, her child uh, and is sort of haunted by it. That's 2009. Going into 2010, where exactly this time 14 years ago, the big sensation at Sundance was The, the Kids Are All Right, which, just remind people, this is pre-gay marriage— pre uh, a lot of things and it's you Julianne Moore um, you're playing the the breadwinner of this same-sex couple whose kids decide to track down their sperm donor and I recently had the opportunity to talk about that movie here on the podcast with Julianne and then we had Mark on a roundtable and now I've got to complete the hat trick and ask you you know it seems like for for everyone it was it's it's not one of these projects where on paper it was going to obviously be something that we would be talking about 14 years later. This was a pretty low-budget, intimate thing. And yet, I mean, Mark says it's the reason he's still an actor. He was ready to oh, walk wow. away. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. So I just wonder for you, um, 
playing this this character, uh, Dr. Nicole Allgood. Nick, you know, what made it as special as it seems it was? I think the writing and, and Lisa shooting it. Um, it was very small. We shot it very quickly. We didn't all know each other that well. I don't know. It was just also a time, a timing thing. Now, when we look back on it, it seems pretty tame. But at the time, the idea of the same-sex couple and their teenage kids and and just getting inside of their marriage and getting inside of, of their relationship and, and and Lisa and Stuart, who wrote it with her, uh, get way inside of this of this very interesting, you know, couple. Um, I felt very comfortable in that. I loved Nick. I remember really well just feeling absolutely um, good about in her skin. Um, And with Julianne, uh, you know, she's such a pro. I don't know. We just kind of jumped into it together and figured it out as we went. Um, Also, I think Lisa is I had seen a number of her films, and she's very, very talented. She knows where to put the camera. She knows when to be involved and when to sit back. And, and I love the way she shoots. She's, um, she never calls attention to herself as a director. By that, I mean, by the way, the camera's moving or not moving. Generally, it's not moving. And she's, uh, she's just watching the performances and wants to bring them out. Um, I, I just trusted her, and I trusted the other people, and I felt... The um, that that I could I could depend on them and the kids as well, Mia and Josh, who are so good in the movie and I think young actors can really ground us in the moment. Those of us who are more experienced and older, because they have such a strong sense of the truth and don't ever go beyond the the margins of what is feels right. And I think that was very inspiring to me and and Julianne as well. Yeah, another one that I would just put up as as special as any of these and i know a lot of people feel this way is 20th century women where you're playing this woman dorothea fields this is in the i guess late 70s santa barbara uh first wave feminist divorcee trying to raise her son and um so mike mills had had made beginners basically about his dad this was basically apparently about his mom but there are just there's some incredible stuff there and i just one scene that always comes to mind is where the son i don't know trying to be empathetic reads a poem i think it is to the mother to show that he gets her and she does not respond well uh but anyway just that's what stands out to me but what stands out to you as you think back on that one oh my fondness for everyone greta and and billy crudup and also uh, mike Mike Mills. I remember the first time I heard about Mike, I was listening to the radio. He was on NPR being interviewed as I was driving in my car, and he was talking about the story of his dad, which is, as you just mentioned, which is what Beginners is about. His parents are married their entire lives. His mother dies, and his father comes out in his 70s, and he makes this great movie about it, And but just also the way he spoke about it. So a lot of that experience for me was just being around Mike. Uh, very few directors um, really work in the way that he works. Nobody, nobody works yeah. the way he works. Um, and I, I just fell in love with that. I felt that was, for me, just just a special um, experience. Elle Fanning, um, and we're still friends. You know, the, the, just this kind of world that he creates. You know, we would dance together. We would do improvisations together. we do things that, you know, you... you dream about an acting school, but no one ever does right. because no one ever has the time <laughs> except Mike Mike Mills. So Mike's um, interest in his mother 
and in really investigating his relationship to her through me. Um, and we just talked en endlessly about her. And we, I think if we got together today, we would probably sit down and still talk about his mom and, and trying to work out the contradictions within his relationship with her. It's actually one of the parts of the of the of uh, the job that is so gratifying because you end up becoming so close to people, especially writers, if you're acting out their mother or them or their lover or their husband, what you know, if whatever. If you're intimately, if you're acting out something that is so, so intimate to them, you end up creating a kind of bond, which um, I really feel. So I'm just I'm just lucky. I loved the experience and it was and the writing is so good. And so funny and dark and unexpected, and there's all kinds of moments that don't go the way you think they're right, going to go. Exactly. And that was Mike. And and I'll just note that that same year. So if that was Mike's one of Mike's passion projects, I know that one of Warren's for how many years was Rules Don't Apply, this Howard Hughes film that you're also a part of, and it finally got uh, realized in 2016. And then, I mean, it's just unbelievable your your uh, consistency over the years because the year after that is another one that that goes in the pantheon, I think, which is Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, which comes back to Gloria Graham. What are the odds that the, of all the people you could have been told to kind of study years earlier with, uh, was it the Grifters? Is that the, yeah, to now be playing her in her later years when she was having kind of forgotten, thrown away by the industry, having an affair with a, a younger guy. Um, and I guess I just wonder, that one I remember Barbara Broccoli talking about the fact that she'd been after you for years and years and years to play this. And what's also crazy is to think that, you know, we're, we're talking about Gloria Graham as like this older, late in life. I think she was in her 50s. Yeah. Like the world has obviously changed, but just uh, you seem to really relish playing that part. So I want to oh, turn thank that you. over to you. Thank you. That's so kind. Barbara Broccoli was friends with Peter Turner. Peter Turner was this guy from Liverpool who met Gloria Graham. She, as you mentioned, she was kind of at the end of her career. She was doing literally regional theater in England and met Peter and fell in love. And they had this, and Peter is this extraordinary person. It just, I don't know where Peter came from, but he is this lovely, lovely man. So they do have a relationship. They break up and then not too long after that, Gloria calls him because she's very ill and she ends up moving into his home with his family in Liverpool. It is truly unbelievable. And his family takes her in and basically nurses her. And after this happens, it's kind of this whirlwind for Peter. And she does leave. She does die when the minute she gets back to the United States. And he's overcome with this experience, and he, he can't quite put it all together. That's how he describes it anyway. And so he sits down and writes this beautiful book. It's a very slender volume about this experience that he had with this woman that he did truly love. And he called it Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. So uh, it was a magical book. And Barbara and I had talked about doing it for a long time, but it really wouldn't have been right until kind of until we did eventually do it. So for us, it's a very, very, uh, you know, heartfelt project. I love doing it. Jamie Bell, what an actor. I just love watching him. I, he was so good to me 
we got we got on great. That was a, another piece of the experience. What an incredible guy he is. I, I really adore him and love watching him in all the various things he's been doing recently, too. But that was also, for me, um, that the generosity of, of Jamie and that experience. That's great. I remember seeing in Telluride where uh, a number of years have first emerged as being very special. Uh, there There is the report, Scott C. Burns, where you're playing just since then, deceased Diane Feinstein, Senator. I saw you on Broadway at first time, I think, in, since Coastal Disturbances when you went back 32 years later for uh, All My Sons. And this brings us to NIAD, which, uh, speaking of Telluride, I just, I'm sorry you weren't able to see how well received it was because of the strike, but people went nuts at at that first and subsequent screenings at Telluride. This is a woman who I know has been on your radar for a long time because I found interviews years before you were ever going to play her where you were referencing Diana Nyad, which I don't know if that stands out in your memory, but I'll show you here. Really? Afterwards. Yeah, I've got a, a fr- in my prep, I put it aside because I was like, wait, when did, when did she say this? And so um, anyway, just I, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, this is a woman who in 2013, at the age of 64, 35 years after her first try, becomes the first person to swim the 110 miles from Cuba to Florida without the aid of a shark cage, 53-hour swim. Jimmy Chen and Chai Wasserelli's first narrative film. These are guys who had done docs about extreme feats. This is now a, a, a narrative about them, about a, an extreme feat. When this one comes to you and you're thinking, all right, there's got to be a a bunch of factors here. Again, first time filmmakers as narrative, but also this is you're going to this is one of the most insane athletic uh, specimens ever that this woman was able to do that. Were you already a swimmer? Were you already? I mean, you look you certainly are convincing in the film. So what 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 went into deciding whether or not to even uh, bite this off. You know, I didn't, I I read it and I just immediately knew I wanted to do it. And I didn't really think about the swimming. I thought more about the part and I thought about the whole arc of the story and I was so into it and moved by it and just got that, that rush of the experience of, of reading it. So I knew I wanted to do it right away. And then I kind of got into it as I figured that out. Oh my God, wait a minute. And and then I, I I think also maybe I was thinking, well, maybe I won't do it all. You know, maybe we'll fake some of it and it's me and then it's a swimmer. And then as I got into it, I was quite intimidated by the swimming. And then I, I'd always been a, in the water. I was a scuba diver as a kid, worked on a boat. I grew up in San Diego, so I was in the water a lot. That felt very natural to me in the ocean and everything, but I had never been a lap swimmer or any of that. So as I got into it, um, I just worked really hard and, uh, you know, I had to overcome a lot of fear of my ability, you know, um, and that is a great gift when you get an opportunity to do something that's new, that's different. I never in my wildest dreams would have guessed that I'd be playing an athlete when I was in my sixties. Never. <laughs> so I kind of got into it and, um, I loved my coach, Rada Owen, who's an Olympian. Um, I've always been fascinated by athletes and their mentality and the great athletes. I've always watched the Olympics and studied them and thought, how do they do what they do? How do they get their mind into that place? Um, 
so I, I relished it. Um, and I think that challenge was something I was ready for. So I did grab it. And then as I got into it, it ended up like, okay, well, maybe this is going to work and maybe I can just actually do it myself. I also didn't want it to look fake and I didn't want it to look like somebody else. And so I was worried about that. I thought, well, if I, if I get in there and then they, if somebody else starts doing the swimming, they're going to be able to tell. And that bothers me when I say things. Plus I enjoyed it. I just ended up loving the water and uh, so it was, it was a lot of work, but, but that's, you know, that's not anything to really, that's just what we do. Right. It's not, it, that's not extraordinary. It's just, we, we all do what we have to do to get ourselves there. And that's our job. That's just the job. She, as you guys show, as you're, as you play it in the film is a compli- complicated, uh, person, you know, she's, I think you have one of the things of her best friend and coach played by Jodie Foster in the film is is kind of bringing her back to to earth sometimes when she gets a little self-involved or uh difficult or whatever i i just wonder you know i i believe you spent some time with her and with the the coach you obviously saw that incorporated that one of the things that's kind of pissed me off is watching how some of the conversation has been about you know, how uh, likable or or is she a, you know, it's about, it's been about her as opposed to what you guys did with the film. This was before anybody even saw the film. There, there, there were things written about that. And I just wonder, it seems like we're not, we're not talking about the giving her the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award. Like this was, this was a complex person who you present in a complex way. I have to imagine that some of the kind of conversation around the film might have been grating to you as well. Um, I don't know. I think it's interesting to observe the way, the metric we use for how we measure women versus men um, and that maybe we can accept uh, more obstreperous behavior from men if they're great champions um, then maybe we say, well, of course, he's in the, he's an unusual personality. He's Muhammad Ali. Right. He says he's the greatest right. or whoever, any of the great athletes, most of them have pretty strong self-images. And so to accept it in a woman maybe is a little bit different. I think it's, it's one way I can look at it and think about it is how we measure politicians. Often, I think that we look at female politicians differently than we look at men. We look at their appearance differently. We accept, we, we want a certain thing from them. Are they, and that likability, whatever that means uh, to people is, is a big deal. So um, I saw in the writing a real human being. And I think a lot of us, not just women, a lot of us are enjoying the fact that there's so many more complex female characters now, and they aren't as stereotyped as they were for a long time. And that um, we see individuals, and Diana is a strong individual, and she is a powerhouse. She's also charming, charismatic, hilarious, and God, so much fun. So much fun. <laughs> she and Bonnie together, they're just energetic, interesting people. They travel. They love to meet new people. They're just eating up life. I'm sorry. That's just who they are. So, um, so yeah, I guess there are some people who prefer women to be quieter, and I've certainly been around those people, um, and that's okay. You know, maybe you need to just go find women that are just quiet and likable right. all the time. <laughs> but but Diana's so much more than that and so much more interesting than that. And I think we, as women... Um, 
you know, we need that. We need to see characters who don't fall into these little categories about what women are like. There's all these different individuals. And somebody just today, in fact, sent me something that Diana did on Instagram where she was singing a song on Instagram. (laughs) And it was just so great to see Diana because, I mean, I find that, I find her incredibly endearing. And by the way, from the moment I met with her, there was also something behind her eyes that was very deep. There is a wounded quality. There's also a triumphant quality. She has all the contradictions of a great character. Anytime you're getting into contradictions when you're playing with somebody, maybe you're getting at something that is has a little bit of the essence of the truth, because we all have that in our own lives, don't we? We're not just one way or another way, of course. And um, Diana's an incredibly intelligent, complex woman. So I just tried as best I could to get all of those those qualities in there. And she allowed us to take some liberties because we needed to create a, a character arc for her. No question. And she allowed us to kind of exaggerate certain things. Last question for you. Thank you for being so generous with your time. I uh, I think one of the things that really hits home with a lot of people on with this film is what she, what you say as her, which is apparently what she actually said when she hit the shore at the end of her big swim, which is, you are never too old to follow your dreams. And, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a fascinating, um, really, there's nothing like her story. And uh, I just wonder, the response to this film, to your performance in it, I think the thing where you may have, you were referencing maybe when you said you'd just seen a clip of Valmont was, may have well have been at the Telluride Film Festival's tribute to you, which is one of a number of things that have happened where, uh, as this performance has been received, people kind of uh, show some appreciation of the full body of work. And so, I mean, there's a million things we haven't even talked about where, you know, the the range of, of experiences. You've done Marvel. You've done all. So I guess I just wonder, here we are at this point, whatever, 20, 20, beginning of 2024, we're looking, we're talking about a... Um, you know, I guess essentially 35 years of filmmaking and just, you know, I've made you relive a lot of it in the course of this conversation. Just what, um, what do you make of this particular moment? How are you feeling about just the way it's, it's, it's been all, all received? Uh, because of the strike, there were so many, you referenced, there were so many screenings that we weren't able to participate in that we might've gotten a sense of how people were responding. I mean, they would send us videos and they would even FaceTime live with us and sort of say, look, Annette, they're also they're also excited. But just last week I was in New York at a screening um with in in a like 150 people or so. And two of my kids were there and their partners were there with them. And that experience of seeing it with an audience, I'd seen it one other time in a big theater, which I loved because it was just to see the the cinematic quality of the movie, which I think the, you know, the lighting and the music and the whole quality of it. But I got to see it uh, with an audience, with my kids. And that, I have to say, I was so proud and I really enjoyed it. I'm hearing from people. I'm hearing from all kinds of people, colleagues, you know, from many decades, people I really haven't heard from in a long time. I'm getting notes. Um, and also, I'm, I, I, women, and, and not just women. There was a guy I was talking to and he said, yeah, you know, I... I watched that movie and I hadn't been riding my bike. <laughs> Suddenly I found myself getting on, getting on and getting back on. Um, that it, it's, it, it gets people in their gut. 
And that's where you want to get them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, totally. When you get people in their gut, then they remember. So um, the idea of moving people, that the, to me, that's the best because that's what I want. When I, when I see something, I want to, I want to think and I want to, uh, you know, I want to be educated and enlightened and all that. But what I really want is to be moved. So the idea that maybe the movie works on that level for some people is just a great, great thing. Great feeling. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for all the, all the great stuff we've been able to talk about today. And, and thank you for doing this. I thank really you for having it. me. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.